Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Today we're sharing part two of our series, 1A USA, Conversations on the First Amendments, Past, Present, and Future, live from last year's National Conference on the First Amendment at Duquesne University. In this episode, you'll hear stories of ordinary citizens who have had an extraordinary impact on the First Amendment. The first panel focuses on First Amendment history and landmark cases and is moderated by Duquesne President Ken Gormley. The panelists are NCC Scholar-in-Residence Michael Gerhard, radio and TV commentator Hugh Hewitt, NYU professor Stephen Solomon, and Tulane law professor Amy Gaida. The MC you'll hear throughout is Joy McNally, Interim Director of the Thomas R. Klein Center for Judicial Education at Duquesne Law. Here's President Gormley to get the conversation started. Good morning. My name is Ken Gormley, and I have the privilege of serving as the 13th President of Duquesne University, and I'm also one of the conference organizers. We're thrilled to have you here with us today. Yesterday afternoon, in opening this magnificent event, I explained the reason for convening this national conference on the First Amendment at this particular moment in American history. There's been a lot of talk in the past few years about the growing divide in this country based upon differing political views and strongly held beliefs that don't mesh. Sometimes we don't stop to appreciate the things that are most important in our lives, our families, our communities, the people we're blessed to work with, and the fact that we're living in a country where freedom, rather than oppression, is the bedrock of our society. We get so caught up in the heated debates of the news of the day that we often don't stop just to count our blessings to consider what makes us the greatest nation on this earth. And it's the things that unite us not the things that divide us, that make the United States of America a world powerhouse. And the First Amendment, folks, sits at the core of all of that. It allows us to speak freely and express our views openly without being thrown in jail. It allows us to publish letters to the editor of newspapers or post blogs online to share our ideas no matter how much others might disagree with them. It allows us to express our religious beliefs, to associate with those people we want to associate with, to assemble in front of the Capitol building if we want to tell our government that we think it's making bad policy or dangerous policy decisions. Take those rights away and we aren't Americans anymore. All of our other rights fall by the wayside. So it's fitting at this moment in American history that we come together to celebrate this little provision in the Bill of Rights. It actually only has 45 words that keeps our whole Constitution hanging together and guarantees that this homegrown American freedom that we cherish is so special, so special that we're willing to fight to protect it, uh, remains in place. Today's panel and panelists uh, feature a who's who of some of the most prominent figures in this country. So I'm going to begin, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the First Amendment, so I want to start with Michael Gerhardt. Um, it, the First Amendment wasn't just an accident, was it, Michael? Uh, so we have this newly formed United States of America. The American colonies, or colonists in many cases, fled from England specifically because the rights of free speech and press were being suppressed, even punished by the Crown. So can you start by telling us a little about the trial of John Peter Zenger in 1833 and why that was so important? Uh, 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 Zenger was a journalist, um, publisher of a, a paper called the New York Weekly Journal. And one of the things he did in that paper was he criticized the royal governor, governor appointed by people back in England. And that got him into trouble. As a result, the uh, governor uh, issued a proclamation, I just quote from it, condemning him for diverse, scandalous, virulent, false, and seditious reflections. He was put on trial. The governor then tried to remove the judges in the trial. And one of his co-counsel was a man named Andrew Hamilton. And Hamilton and the co-counsel decided the be their best strategy 
was to toss it to the jury. And the jury ultimately found Mr. Zinger not guilty. Um, in fact, uh, much of what we talk about in the First Amendment today is what's the significance of that outcome. One thing it could signify is what we call jury nullification, letting the jury decide for itself whether or not to go forward with the prosecution or conviction. The other thing it may stand for is the principle that while something might be libelous, a defense could well be either truth or being able to prove or support what you've said. Okay, and Steve Solomon, um, there was a lot of protest speech during the founding period, wasn't there? Not just John Peter Zenger, but this, this was actually something very important to the colonists. <clears throat> yes, um, John Adams wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1815 um, in which he said that he believed that the revolution actually started a decade before blood was shed at Lexington and Concord. And the revolution was in changing the minds of the people, changing public opinion. People had to go from being subjects of Britain, loyal subjects, into revolutionaries. And it all started around 1765 with the Stamp Act and pamphleteering, uh, essays written. But the problem with all of that was they, were, they, they discussed English constitutional history. Not many people could read. Fewer people could understand it. And so they made a, uh, the patriot leaders made an outreach into the masses of people trying to change public opinion. They used liberty trees and liberty poles. They were hanging effigies of, of the British prime minister along with the devil. Sermons, songs, I mean, across the board. Then uh, in, the, in the ratification period, we had probably the greatest debate in American history. Just every form of communication, robust speech. And so if coming out of that period, if you were to ask, I think, a a person, a common person, common citizen, what they thought their rights were under the First Amendment, they might well say, well, it protects what we did. Mm -hmm. And how did, by the way, the First Amendment wasn't part of the original Constitution. How did it get there, and how did it end up first in the Bill of Rights? So three delegates um, in, in Philadelphia refused to sign the Constitution. And the most important of those three was George Mason of Virginia, who was the primary author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776, the most important Declaration of Rights up to that time in, in history. And uh, he objected because, primarily because there was no Bill of Rights um, to, to set the people, to protect the people against this big, powerful federal government that had been created. And so in the ratifying conventions, one of the biggest issues um, of ratification was whether there would be a Bill of Rights. Uh, in Virginia, uh, the, the, the Constitution was ratified 89 to 79, very close. In New York, even closer, 30 to 27, largely as a result of the compromise that the Federalists made. We will push for a Bill of Rights in the first Federal Congress um, if you vote uh, f to ratify. And so uh, when it got to the first Federal Congress, Madison introduced the amendments, and um, actually Congress sent 12 amendments out to the states, not 10. And today's First Amendment was the third listed. The first two that were proposed failed ratification at that time. And so numbers 3 through 12 moved up. And that's why we're here talking about the First Amendment and not celebrating the third. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Amy Gaida, even after we have a constitution and a bill of rights, speech was often suppressed. So tell us quickly about the story of Luther Baldwin, for instance. Sure. So Luther Baldwin was basically a, a garbage man. He piloted a, a, a garbage barge. Uh, and he was uh, at a bar in New Jersey in 1798. And they were all talking excitedly because uh, President Adams was in town, uh, a big celebration with a lot of noise. Uh, and that included some cannons going off. And, uh, and so the, the group there discussed uh, the, the cannons. And uh, Luther Baldwin said, I don't care if they fired through his arse meaning that John Adams could be hit in the rear by a cannonball and Luther Baldwin would be absolutely okay with that. 
And the problem was that this was uh, then uh, against the T Sedition Act of 1798 that made it a crime to, in effect, speak ill of the president. Uh, it was a crime to publish any false, scandalous, malicious writing against the government. Uh, and so Luther Baldwin is fined $150. That's $3,000 uh, in today's money. He can't pay it, and so he's uh, then sent to jail. Uh, but the good news is that there's a rallying cry then uh, in favor of broader First Amendment protections, and when Thomas Jefferson is then uh, elected, uh, Luther Baldwin is, uh, is pardoned. So that's why we know about him uh, even today. And we're going to jump to the 20th century in a second, but Steve Solomon, quickly, the Sedition Act in some ways kind of spurred forward free speech, ironically, didn't it? In the end, it was actually it was a good thing for freedom of speech because um, people didn't go into, into their basements and wait for the storm to pass. They, they de still debated. The number of opposition newspapers doubled during that two-and-a-half-year period. And in the end, um, uh, James Madison wrote his... Uh, a fantastic um, you know, report of 1800 to the Virginia House of Delegates, which was probably the greatest defense of free speech uh, ever written um, in this country. He said a lot of things there, but one of the things that's really important is he uh, talked about democratic self-governance and the need of a free press to support the ideas and the critiquing of public officials and public measures so that we can make wise choices. Mm -hmm. And so let's jump to the 20th century and let me ask Hugh Hewitt and many of you are saying Hugh Hewitt, I'm used to seeing him on TV or listening on the radio, but he's actually also <laughs> a scholar and a law professor of constitutional law. And so it's wonderful to have you on this panel, Hugh. So ironically, and I've taught this many years too, it's, it seems strange, doesn't it, that the first First Amendment cases ever really to be squarely decided by the Supreme Court, in fact curtailed the freedom of speech, this perceived subversive speech during then World War I. So tell us a little bit about the test that evolved in Schenck versus United States. I've been blessed by having great con law teachers, the very first one of whom was Archibald Cox, who deigned to teach the undergraduates when I was a senior. And he used to tell the people, and I've stolen it many times, Constitution was largely written by farmers, to be read by farmers, and debated by farmers in convention. And it is supposed to be understood broadly by a free people, not a secret society in coded text. And so when it came time to deal with subversive speech, the court struggled through a lot of years of coming up with what did this mean in the context of the Bolshevik Revolution, the perceived threats to the United States, including a clear and present danger test and many other tests. And I told Ken, when we were preparing for this, because of the way that the ABA works, con law has gone from a mandatory six-hour course to a three-hour course in <laughs> law schools. And they've made the First Amendment optional. And I, I've always thought to myself, that's such a, a slash at who we are. And therefore, I compress everything into pre-Brandenburg and after Brandenburg, which is the case that is our current <laughs> thing. And I tell all my law students, go back and read if you want. We had a very difficult time. Justice Holmes had a very difficult time finding out how to deal with free speech. But we got there eventually to the modern test that celebrates and very rarely punishes speech. And I think it was finally recognizing that the greatest defense against subversion is the open and free exchange of ideas from whatever side of the spectrum. Thanks, Hugh. And let me ask Mike Gerhardt about the Brandenburg test because it really evolves, in my mind, uh, during the late 50s and then the early 60s, when there was almost a national sense of guilt that we had behaved as we had done suppressing speech for so many decades. And the Supreme Court concludes, finally, that they'd gone too far. So what do they decide in Brandenburg, Mike? And incidentally, do you think it was a good decision? I'll get the easy question out first. Yes, that's <laughs> um, a good decision. Um, it, it's, a, it's an odd decision, um, if you look at it. Um, it takes a while for the court to get to the position you're, you're talking about. It's the late 60s at this point. And in the Brandenburg decision, um, the focus is on um, a speaker uh, who happens to be a Ku Klux Klan leader speaking out in a rural location in Ohio um, and basically trying to rev up the crowd. Um, and then he's uh, found to have violated Ohio's Criminal Syndicalism Act, 
which essentially is helping to form some kind of criminal syndicate or otherwise helping to advocate violence or they overthrow the government. Um, and the court issues not a regular opinion, but what's called a per curiam opinion, which means none of the justices wanted to take credit for it. They all hide behind that. Um, and in, their test has sort of two basic components to it. Um, one is that the speech has to be directed at inciting imminent lawless action. And the second is that the speech has to be likely to actually have produced imminent lawless action. Now, trying to find speech that could satisfy both those things is very difficult. And it helps produce what has often been called the most speech protective test ever devised. And, and so let me ask you, let's think of recent events with violence in Charlottesville, for instance, protesters in Charlottesville who literally spark violence. Uh, does that mean the police can't stop them? Do we have to go back to some of our pre-Brandenburg tests in some instances today? Uh, there is going to be quite a lot of debate about the reach of 18 U.S.C. 351, which is a law prohibiting assault of members of the government. And even last night, Leader McConnell was assaulted, in my view, in a, in a restaurant in Louisville. And in Charlottesville, it became violence. The Proud Boys in New York became violence. And so this ability to incite, given the rise of social media, presents very difficult new challenges as to what is imminent, uh, because violence can arise and erupt quite quickly and be organized rather dramatically. But I don't want to retreat too fast from what the professor just described. It's the greatest speech protector in the world. I make my living talking. I like it this way. I don't want to go backwards. <laughs> and let me ask Mike Gerhardt again. Uh, the Tinker case is a great example, I think, of the modern protection the court has developed. Uh, here you had students wearing black armbands during the Vietnam War era, and Mary Beth Tinker, who will be one of our speakers, uh, was actually protected by the Supreme Court in that, in one of the great cases as, the, as high school kids protested the Vietnam War. Uh, what does that case stand for? Well, she was ultimately protected, but not before she was suspended. She was part of a group of students who were, in fact, as you say, protesting the Vietnam War, which is a very prevalent activity during the 1960s. This, but this is in Iowa. And there's a group of students who decided they were going to protest the war by wearing black armbands. The school initially found out about it and said they shouldn't do it, and if asked, they should take them off. What happens is the school finds out she's wearing a black armband, tells her to take it off, and of course she doesn't. Um, and this case eventually finds its way to the Supreme Court, where one of the questions the court has to deal with is whether or not speech might take the form of symbolic conduct. Does it always have to be expressed through words, or could be expressed through something else, such as wearing a black armband? Seven to two, the court ends up protecting the wearing of a, the armband as symbolic conduct. Interestingly enough, two of the great First Amendment advocates on the Supreme Court dissent, Hugo Black, John Marshall Harlan II, each of whom has written and will write great, wonderfully eloquent opinions about the First Amendment, both finding that action or conduct may never actually qualify as speech. And we'll talk about that in a minute again, but uh, Amy, let's stop for a minute. Not every, as Justice Ginsburg said, not every type of speech in every setting is protected by the First Amendment. There are reasonable limits, right? So fighting words, uh, child pornography, lewd speech in high school settings, burning crosses to intimidate families, all of those can be prohibited. Uh, what about defamation? This is one of your big areas. Are false and hurtful stories published in the press protected? Well, uh, they can be. So there are, there are ways that courts um, uh, look uh, at uh, exactly what is reported uh, and why uh, the journalists reported um, certain things. Defamation is reputation uh, harming false speech. And so as I tell my students, if someone uh, published on Facebook, for example, that I had a criminal record as a bank robber before I became a lawyer, I could sue that poster for defamation. I could sue a newspaper that reported that, and I could sue someone who said that, because that is false defamation harming uh, speech. 
Now it's true that people who are um, public officials and, and public figures um, have to um, prove actual malice by the publisher. And what that means is they have to prove knowing falsity or with reckless disregard as to falsity. And what's interesting, though, is that even though these standards are higher than for an everyday person like maybe me, uh, Melania Trump won a defamation lawsuit against the Daily Mail just last year. She got uh, $2.4 million in settlement uh, for defamation. What had happened in that case was that the Daily Mail reported that she was a prostitute before she uh, married President Trump. Uh, she sued the Daily Mail in the United States for defamation. Uh, and uh, apparently what came out uh, in discovery was that the Daily Mail, in reporting what it reported, had relied on a blog that was apparently not uh, a reputable blog uh, in Slovenia. Uh, and so that was enough then to prove recklessness to an extent uh, that the Daily Mail then settled um, that defamation claim brought by Melania Trump. And the other thing I want to mention very briefly too here is uh, that also truthful speech can sometimes uh, be limited uh, on privacy grounds. Uh, and so courts are grappling uh, with that as well. So both uh, defamatory speech and then also privacy invading speech can in fact become the subjects of litigation. So let me ask you, um, as Amy said, if you're a public official or a public figure, New York Times v. Sullivan suggests that you may be subjected to some pretty outrageous attacks, and the notion is you have stepped into the limelight. So you're a public figure, Hugh. You're subjected to this. In the world, in the age of Twitter, uh, is everyone now a public figure? How do we deal with that? That, that is the key question as to when when you walk into the middle of the social media free fire zone, do you then become a combatant that can never leave? Now, I, I love this test because I speak, at, you know, the rule of talk radio is frequently wrong, never in doubt. And I have been on the <laughs> receiving end of many, many defamations. I've got a couple of Trump tattoos, as a matter of fact. And my friend Juan Williams, who's sitting here, receives defamations every single day. If you're in our business, it's a defame attractor. But I wouldn't have it any other way because you don't have to guard yourself against, as in the United Kingdom, judgments by people who are trying to ruin you financially so that they can silence you politically. And that's what the glory of New York Times v. Sullivan is. And, and are anonymous comments which have proliferated now, are they protected too? You know, that is the cutting edge. And I am a huge proponent of ending anonymity online. Uh, like who was remembered at the beginning, Jamal Khashoggi, I'm a contributing writer to the Washington Post. If you read the comment section in any public profile, there'll be 6,000 comments, 5,995 of which will be awful and, and evil, but they're anonymous. And so I think the solution is in ending anonymity, not um, expanding it, and thereby allowing people to seek justice against those who defame you if they do so willfully and ma with malice. But uh, anonymity is truly a challenge to our, our public square. And, and let me switch for a second to Mike Gerhardt. Uh, it was mentioned earlier that it's sometimes not just speech, that, but conduct that can be protected. And the classic case here is Texas v. Johnson having to do with burning the American flag. So tell us a little about that and why the U.S. Supreme Court, even the most conservative members of the court, believe that that conduct was protected. So the year of this case is, um, comes in the late 80s, but the actual burning of the flag was in 1984. Um, and burning the flag or desecrating the flag has, if we could put it this way, been a long-standing tradition in America, as has it's been its criminalization. Uh, there's been long-standing efforts to sort of criminalize or at least prohibit the burning of the flag in some respects. And this is what comes to, uh, to a head in the case called Texas versus Johnson. A um, man named, of course, Johnson uh, burns the flag and he is then um, arrested for violating a, a law that had barred flag desecration. It goes to the Supreme Court, as you say, the court decides five to four, and we're back to the question whether conduct may be expressive. In this case, the conduct has to do with burning a flag, and the flag, of course, is a symbol, so burning it might also be a symbolic act. Interestingly, the opinion, although written by Justice Brennan, also is concurred in by Justice Kennedy and Justice Scalia. Interesting combination of justices here. And one of the things that Justice Kennedy, not always known, 
for saying things in a particularly eloquent way captures, I think, the essence of the case where he says the flag also protects those who hold it in contempt. And interestingly, right after that case, Congress tried to pass the Flag Protection Act to, in effect, nullify that decision. And the Supreme Court rightly uh, said, you know, we, uh, well, you can't just nullify a decision. It was precedent. But when it went to the desk of President George H.W. Bush, a hero during World War II, uh, he did not sign it because even though the flag meant so much to him, he knew it was not up to Congress to try to overturn the, the First Amendment. And I, I think we'll just pass on this topic, but obviously spending money, right, can be a form of speech in terms of campaign contributions, another controversial topic. But I want to jump to freedom of religion for a minute because We've promised that we're going to talk about the five pillars of the First Amendment, all of the important pieces of it. And uh, it isn't just limited to speech and press. It also protects religious freedom in our country. So Steve Solomon first, as the historian, why was that important to the framers of the First Amendment? So in the founding period, uh, religious freedom actually represented a change in the status quo because nine of the 13 colonies had established churches, which meant that people were taxed to support a church. Perhaps ministers from minority denominations had to get um, licenses to preach. And um, it started to change because of an increasing diversity in the, in the colonies. Um, just a lot of different denominations came into the various um, areas and they demanded change. And so in uh, 1776 in Virginia, uh, when George Mason um, wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights, one of the provisions was um, that the Anglican Church would stay established but that other religions, minority religions there, would be tolerated. James Madison, who was 25 years old and just out of Princeton, didn't like that. And he didn't like the idea of toleration because it implied a superior religion that kind of let everybody do what they wanted to do. Um, and so he came up with a phrase, it would protect the free exercise of religion. And then 10 years later, he comes back into the Virginia Assembly again and passes, helps pass uh, Jefferson's statute for religious freedom. And that's what disestablished the, the church uh, in Virginia. And that basically happened all over the colonies. Uh, and, then the, and then the states. And um, you know, why did this happen? Two reasons at least. Um, one is the increasing diversity that I mentioned. And the other, um, I, I think Madison and many of the other framers felt that uh, in regard to separating church and state, if you did that, and this is almost exactly Madison's words, it would guarantee the purity of both. And so we end up with the First Amendment that has a free exercise clause and a clause that separates church and state, the Establishment Clause. And Hugh Hewitt, the free exercise clause, this is one of your big areas that you've spent a lot of time on. And it's a powerful provision in the First Amendment. Uh, it serves to protect citizens from the government interfering with their religious liberties. And one of my favorite cases here is Wisconsin v. Yoder. But tell us a little bit about that, because to me that really summarizes the free exercise clause. Wisconsin v. Yoder just puts before the court whether or not uh, the Amish may be obliged by the state law of Wisconsin to educate their children beyond the eighth grade. And the Supreme Court stands with the Amish in a mixture of upholding parental rights, but also the free exercise of their religion. Uh, controversial at the time, it's been subsequently redacted or cut back on in an employment division versus Smith, but this is going to be the cutting edge for the new court, I think, the definition of what free exercise means. And as an aside, serendipitously, uh, like Duquesne, I'm Catholic, and, and, and like the people who founded Duquesne, I'm a missionary. I work for MSNBC. And I, <laughs> I went to church last night at the Church of the Epiphany, which is down here at the, the bottom of the road, and I read with great interest its history. The city of Pittsburgh longed for it. They wanted that property so badly when they were building their uh, hockey arena, and they needed the parking. They dared not condemn it. They dared not do anything other than negotiate a fair price for its parking lot so deeply inbred 
is the protection of faith in the United States. <laughs> it's so wonderful that just down the road to us is, is a monument to how powerful is the shared common sense approach to the sanctity of religion that leaves the Amish to educate their children and the church at the bottom of the street. And, and I was hesitant to raise this, uh, Hugh, but do I remember you're from Cleveland originally? I'm from the home of professional football. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, let me switch to Mike Gerhardt, because when we're talking about the separation of church and state, there are limitations so that doesn't become too inflexible, right? So there are some famous cases, Everson v. Board of Ed, dealing with school busing, uh, for parochial school children, Agostini v. Felton dealing with sign language interpreters in, in private schools uh, that, that kind of illustrate that. Well, tell us a, a little bit about those. Sure, I mean, just a quick point of privilege. I have to defend Cleveland as well. My wife is from Cleveland. So, uh, that's where we were married. So that's a whole separate conference, defending Cleveland. Um, Let me just say we don't usually worry too much about Cleveland fans because it's not really relevant to the Steelers most season. So. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's relevant to the constitutional law, as are these two cases. So we'll come back to this. Um, one of the real challenges anytime you try and teach establishment clause decisions is they are nearly irreconcilable. They are virtually incoherent. Trying to make sense out of them is virtually impossible, unless you get two that are roughly similar. And that's, I appreciate that. You've given me two that are roughly similar. So with Eberson, we're dealing in a situation with the New York, New Jersey law that essentially allowed for reimbursement for transportation for students to private schools. Now, not all uh, schools were, um, not all private schools were parochial, but most of them were, about 96%. And so there was a challenge brought against this practice, but the Supreme Court decides that because the practice wasn't just directed at helping a particular religion, it would be upheld. That's almost very similar to what happens later in Augustini, um, 1997 case, where we're dealing with a law that essentially allowed, as you point out, money that would help uh, bring into schools sign language interpreters. But the point is those people would be available in all schools, not just parochial schools. So once again, the practice wasn't singling out parochial schools for special treatment is providing aid or support for people across the school system, and that was basically this court's logic in deciding the case. And mainly aid at helping the children. Yes. It was, it was designed to help all school kids. Yes. Uh, but now that you have two similar cases, how about two puzzling cases, <laughs> the Ten Commandments cases, some really, and one of the great Ten Commandments cases, as you know, uh, there have been some here in, here in Pittsburgh as well. But. Uh, the Supreme Court dealt at the same time with one in Kentucky and Texas, displays of the Ten Commandments, and came out differently on those two. How could that be possible, Mike? Well, it, yeah, it, it's a, it's a very, I mean, it essentially comes down to whether or not you have your Ten Commandments shrine standing by itself or, or with other things. That's essentially the difference. So in one place, we've got the Ten Commandments standing by itself. That gets struck down, much like, let's say, school prayer, if you have it posted as it was in that case. Uh, but if you have the Ten Commandments, let's say, memorial um, that's part of a celebration of Western law or part of a celebration that includes other things, then that isn't, doesn't, uh, in a sense, endorse religion. It doesn't uh, provide, it doesn't en uh, end up causing, causing any violation of the establishment clause. And my recollection in the Kentucky case, there was an intent to put it up to celebrate the Ten Commandments. And in the Texas case, it was a giant uh, version of the Ten Commandments that had been put there when they were filming the movie Ten Commandments uh, in the 60s, and so it clearly did not have that purpose. But so these things get pretty tricky in terms of looking at context the matters. Yeah. Um, so Steve Solomon, just real quickly, we haven't really talked about freedom of association, which is implied in the First Amendment, but also the right of assembly and petition, which are explicit there. Uh, there aren't a lot of cases about those rights, but they're still important. Why? They're important because we tend to look at rights um, in the First Amendment sort of individually, press, speech, and so forth. When you look at it from the founders' point of view, they saw, I think, the First Amendment as laying out rights that told a narrative of American self-governance. So um, there, there's an there's a internal logic about this. It starts with protection of religious liberty. And that really involves people kind of trying to figure out um, where they fit in the universe and perhaps their relationship to a higher power, those, those kinds of ideas. 
Then it moves on to protect uh, the freedom of speech, uh, the exchange of ideas between two people or in a group uh, such as we have here. The next right protected is freedom of the press, which is the institutional means to get those ideas out there to a very large audience. So you can see there's, there's a logic here. So once you've done that, you've exchanged ideas, you've created a marketplace, it's out there, what's next? And what's next is political action. And so you protect the right to assemble, to find like-minded people, get together in the streets or wherever, and demonstrate protest. For what purpose? To petition the government for a redress of grievances. And so in 45 words, you move through uh, the conception of what American self-governance is. And it also suggests that today, looking at these rights individually, we may be missing a larger point, which is that if you attack one of those rights, rights of a free press, you not only affect press rights, but you affect the entire trajectory of thought and opinion and political action that the First Amendment was intended to produce for the by the founders. Okay, that gives us a, a minute about each to just say a word about, it's fun to think about this, what if the framers arrived here and were sitting in this conference today, the framers of the First Amendment? Would they think that we as a country have been true to the general principles that caused them to put this First Amendment in the Bill of Rights in the first place? So we'll start with you, Amy. I, I think that one of the most, uh, the, the things that, one of the most interesting things that the framers would be particularly interested in uh, today is this clash between freedom of the press and the right to privacy. Uh, and at what point we should punish the press or anyone uh, who reveals private information about an individual. This is uh, what led to the um, $140 million jury verdict in favor of Hulk Hogan against the Gawker website that had published um, a sex tape featuring him. Uh, but it also um, led more recently to um, a, a settlement against ESPN brought by a New York um, Giants football player. ESPN had published um, a medical chart. Uh, um, his medical chart. And so I think that that clash is one of the most interesting ones. We want to protect individual privacy in some way. At what point do we decide that the freedom of the press to report that truthful information should be punished? Mike? Well, maybe I, I may suggest a couple, a couple things. The first is when we talk about the framers in the First Amendment, we need to remember, of course, that they might not have agreed on very much after they agreed on the wording of the First Amendment. Um, and certainly when the practice came around, they might have, they oftentimes found themselves on different sides of equations. So it's helpful to remember, among other things, the ratifiers, the people right. who came in, uh, that important event when the people ratified their constitution. Um, uh, in terms of uh, what, the, what else um, the framers might have thought about different issues, let me come up with something more local for me from North Carolina. At the University of North Carolina, we had a statute called Silent Sam which was a Confederate soldier, big statue of a Confederate soldier, placed right in the most prominent place on campus. Raising the interesting question, to what extent does the university speak? At what point does, uh, what we find when we look at First Amendment doctrine or cases is people might have different rights depending upon where they are in the system. Administrators, let's say, government officials, um, students. What rights do all these different people have in a particular situation? In our case, Silent Sam was eventually brought down but then it raised the question, because North Carolina protected that statue, where do we put it? Um, for a lot of students, that statute's very expressive and not expressive in a very positive way. And this kind of raises a very interesting, confounding question we ought to think about. And we've had similar issues here in Pittsburgh as the uh, towns have all across the country. Hugh? It's a great way to frame it, Ken, and well-run well panel. I, um, I think they would generally be very, very happy with where the court is today, with the exception of the Establishment Clause. Mike is right, it's a mess. Uh, there is a court, there's a decision presently pending, an eight to six decision for deny rehearing on banc on the destruction of a 49-foot Latin cross, which is a World War I memorial that's 100 years old, which may be the occasion for the, the cohering of uh, Establishment Clause doctrine. But I wish we could summon their brains to deal with issues that they would never have imagined. 
which includes deep fake news. Soon we will be confronted with the ability of people to produce images that looks like the Washington Post, that has my name and my picture next to it, and my voice speaking. The technology is here, and I don't think we have any idea to deal with the technological issues that, that rise up before us. Steve? Uh, so the, the, the founding generation and the framers were largely concerned with political speech. Today, the concept has expanded. It's, it's not just freedom of speech, but freedom of expression. And so we protect artistic speech. Uh, we protect Mary Beth Tinker. She wore a black armband to protest the Vietnam War. She didn't say a thing. She had a, an armband, but nonetheless, that's part of the freedom of expression. So I think they'd be, I think they'd be happy about um, the protection of, of, of these rights. Another thing that I think concerned them um, was uh, just how slow communication was. I mean, when something happened in Boston, it's kind of a, hothead, a, hot, a hotbed of protest, it took two or three weeks for anybody to read it in the southern colonies and six weeks to, before they could read about it in London. And, and, and now marrying this expanded concept of freedom of expression with instantaneous communication uh, is very, very powerful. Um, it also brings about a lot of problems that, that, that we've alluded to. Uh, but the, the, the marriage of those two is, is quite profound. Well, I think this opening panel has provided a wonderful foundation for all of the discussion that will follow. So ladies and gentlemen, can we hear it for our wonderful <laughs> panelists? We'll exit, we'll exit the stage and get ready for the next panel. In our next session, we will examine landmark First Amendment cases. We welcome again Duquesne University President Ken Gormley, who will moderate this session to introduce our panelists. In this special segment, we'll hear from two people who've been deeply involved in historic event efforts to protect First Amendment rights. Uh, Dr. Sean Peters, involved in Wisconsin v. Yoder, and Mary Beth Tinker, one of the plaintiffs in the historic Tinker v. Des Moines Independent School Community School District in 1969. Um, Dr. Peters is the author of The Yoder Case, Religious Liberty, Education, and Parental Rights. And just to set the stage for a moment, this case, which is one of my favorite in all constitutional law, involved three Amish students from three different Amish families in New Glarus, Wisconsin, who stopped attending public school after eighth grade in keeping with their family's religious beliefs and their convictions that it was important to work on the family farm after grade school rather than attending public high school in order to prepare for a life in rural Amish community life. The students' parents were convicted of violating Wisconsin's compulsory school attendance laws, which required students to attend school until age 16. They believed, the parents, that this would endanger their own salvation and that of their children if they were for forced to comply with this law, contrary to their religious beliefs. So they went on to challenge the Wisconsin law, and the U.S. Supreme Court ended up ruling in the parents' favor finding that the First Amendment free exercise clause protected their decision. And I would note that this really spawned the, a large, broader homeschooling movement in the United States, this case, and was transformational in many ways. Dr. Peters has chronicled this work. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to ask Dr. Sean Peters to tell a little bit about this historic case. As uh, President Gormley mentioned, uh, Yoder is a case that was decided by the US Supreme Court in 1972. And the legal issues were relatively straightforward, at least on the surface. Um, Wisconsin, like almost every state, um, had a compulsory school attendance law that mandated school attendance until the age of 16. And these are laws that have been around for now 150 years, and they're just meant for, uh, the government has them in, in order to ensure that people are ready to function in society, whether that's through 
uh, a robust understanding of citizenship, uh, knowing how to read and write. So these are common laws uh, in every state, not only Wisconsin. However, the Old Order Amish in New Glarus, Wisconsin, and Old Order Amish, as the name suggests, especially conservative Amish, believed that school attendance beyond the age of 14 was a problem. Uh, and their belief, according to their ordnung, the ordnung is the sort of uh, rules of the community, stated that um, if you had sort of high school education, that would threaten the faith community. Students would become too worldly. They would just learn things that would sort of pull them away from their faith. So we have a collision, as often happens in great difficult First Amendment cases, between two actually pretty good and reasonable interests. The state's interest in making sure that students are educated, that's a pretty good interest, and also the li religious liberty of the Amish. So there was a prosecution of the parents of um, Frida Yoder, Aidan Yetzi, and uh, Wallace Miller. And it was interesting when I started writing about this case, the f I'm, I tend to ask kind of dumb questions. It's a good way to start out. And I didn't know a lot about the Amish before I wrote this book, but one thing I knew is that they didn't, there are no Amish lawyers, and Amish don't believe in going to law using the courts or the political system. And I thought, how in the world did we have a landmark First Amendment case involving the Amish if they don't believe in going to law? And it turns out that um, advocates came in and represented the Amish. They had some friends who said, you're involved in this legal dispute, we're gonna help you out. This group, this group called the National Coalition for Amish Religious Freedom that came in definitely partly uh, with noble intentions to help the Amish and to help protect their religious liberty, but also a degree of self-interest. They were involved in uh, other, I don't know, sort of litigation and public policy debates over protecting and encouraging parochial Catholic education. So uh, they sort of championed this case and took it to the Supreme Court. Um, there were accusations that this outside group, uh, there was an editorial in Commonweal that uh, accused this outside group of, quote, using the Amish. Um, the case goes to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice uh, Warren Berger writes the opinion protecting the religious liberty of the Amish, and it's often um, thought of as this kind of high watermark for free, free exercise jurisprudence. It's probably the furthest extension of judicial protections for free exercise. There's been a diminution, of, you mentioned yesterday, Oregon versus Smith and other cases subsequently. Um, and it was hailed as the salvation of the Amish in New Glarus. They were gonna, now they were free to pr practice their faith without the interference of the state. And so I wrote this book and I, I said, well, I, I live in Madison, it's maybe 20 or 25 minutes from New Glarus. I, I'm gonna go down to New Glarus, I'm gonna talk to some Amish people and there aren't a lot of Amish people in New Glarus anymore. And it turns out they moved away and um, they moved away in part because of the case, their participation in this case, because of their strictures about going to law, created division and dissent in the community. Um, and in fact, Jonas Yoder, the person whose name is on that case, uh, was one of the first people to leave. He moved to Missouri and said, somewhat famously, I quote this in my book, there was this kind of heartbreaking interview that he gave and he said, I wish anybody else's name had been on this case other than mine because the Amish value humility. Being the most famous Amish person in the United States is not a good thing. And I, for me, that, that fascinated me. We're talking about landmark cases and I think a lot about how um, we move from landmark to landmark when we teach about the law and we talk about the law. And oftentimes it's, it's important to just strip away some of the mythology behind these cases and to kind of look at who, was, who were involved, who were the parties, who were the actors, what were the social, political, and cultural forces that shaped them, and then what was the actual outcome? We did get this judicial precedent. It's funny that you mentioned homeschooling. I'm writing a book on homeschooling that's gonna come out next spring. Thanks for the plug. Um, 
so it's hugely important. Everybody knows Yoder talks about it. It's an important case, but it's also important to know the people, and that's why I'm so glad that mm -hmm. you're here, to talk about the people as well. It's not just abstraction and theory. Um, there are individuals whose lives are at stake. Um, I think about that as well. My first book had been about the Jehovah's Witnesses in the mm -hmm. Supreme Court. Um, and again, looking at the, the I, every First Amendment conference must mention the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're sort of unsung heroes of the First Amendment. They don't get talked about a lot because they're sort of unpopular and perceived of as being strange. Yet those outliers, those people on the fringes or the margins of American society, especially as it relates to the free exercise clause, polygamists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Amish farmers, faith healers, users of peyote, those are the people who are really making that law and challenging the parameters of state power. Thank you, that's really interesting and, and it underscores the deep, the sincerity of the Yoder's religious belief about this, that they did it at their own peril and it actually ended up driving them from their own community, but they felt so strongly about it, they did it. Absolutely, yeah, that was the, and it's almost, the, the Amish are, are interesting to write about and to study and to, to just know because they, and, and you know, Justice Berger's opinion, it, it sort of oozes admiration for this uh, noble yeoman, far, the Jeffersonian farmers and the Amish. And that's absolutely true. There was, and that's actually one of the things, their, their very sincerity, I think, at least in the case of Jonas Yoder, really caused him to question why it was that he had, on the one hand, he wanted to practice his faith, but on the other hand, he had used the institution of the state, right? That he used the courts, and, and so there was an ambivalence there. And for me as an historian, that's really interesting. And I don't know what the answer is or how he could have solved that, but as a storyteller, I really like that because that's really complicated and difficult. And so it's not just um, a narrative of valor and triumph and you know success. It's something that there's an ambivalence or complication to it. And, and I think you're right, Sean, that getting to hear from the people themselves is a crucial part of this. And so we are really lucky to have with us today Mary Beth Tinker, who, and I'll just say a word and then I'll let you tell your story largely, Mary Beth. But I, I believe you were 13 years old, right, in 1965 during the height of the Vietnam War when you and some other students in your school decided to wear black armbands to protest. Uh, the war. The school board got wind of it, tried to do a preemptive strike to ban that. Uh, you wore it anyway and were sent home when you refused to take it off, uh, as were some of the other students, and that led to a four-year court battle till the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Tinker v. Des Moines in 1969. And it's a famous, famous case, folks, where the court said that students do not shed their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. And what was particularly important was not just that this armband wasn't a piece of cloth, but it was a form of speech, but it was specifically a form of political speech, perhaps the most important type of speech in our country. So tell us about, Mary Beth has continued her wonderful work and goes around the country talking, you know, particularly to young folks about the importance of the speech and the First Amendment. So tell us your story. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me here as part of this wonderful conference at this time when we really need civil dialogue. And I think everyone can agree that this has been a wonderful example of that. But uh, yes, I was talking with some students at lunchtime actually about what motivates people to take a stand, what motivates people to use their First Amendment rights. And I was talking about the emotion. So many young people today do have strong feelings and um, they should be respected for that. And then that combined with having examples of people who do something about those feelings and take a stand about those feelings. And I was very lucky to have that in my life. <clears throat> I had been raised in the church and my father was a minister, a Methodist minister. And so he felt very strongly that you should uh, take your beliefs, your faith beliefs, and put them into action 
on earth. Don't wait for heaven. Just get busy right now and, uh, you know, stand up for the things that you believe in, like love, brotherhood, uh, and then and, and understanding the things that we need so much today. And, and then combining that with the ideas that I got in school about democracy and equality and justice and, and those kinds of things also, it was a powerful example. So I had examples of that. And I think uh, so many young people now, they have examples. We had the examples of the civil rights movement, kids. Because in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, young people, 2,000 kids were arrested, black students, for standing up to the KKK, and standing up against the white supremacists. And they were, I'm sure if some of you have seen those uh, amazing photos. It's really a story of journalism and the free press. Because those photos then came into our living room and we saw the kids who were so brave and stood up to the Klan, stood up to the uh, dogs, the German shepherd dogs that they were attacked by, and the water hoses. And so we had that example. And then, by, and then in 1964 was also Freedom Summer, where young people went from all over the United States to Mississippi to help register African American voters. And they were called there by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee Robert Moses and others, and when they got there, three of them were murdered. So my parents went to Mississippi that year, and again, they believed that you should put your, your beliefs into action, and they came home on my 12th birthday and told us about how the house they were in had been shot at, and, and uh, all of this. You know, well, after Birmingham, the children were then punished, the children who stood up in Birmingham and spoke up by the KKK because, of course, their headquarters, their church, was bombed. And that was in 1963. So in those mighty times, there was so much going on. But after the children were bombed, uh, the church was bombed in Birmingham, and the four little girls, their, their charred bodies were found in the church, and they were about the same ages as, as me and my sisters. Uh, Bayard Rustin, who was a leader of the Civil Rights Movement, he put out a letter saying that we should all wear black armbands to mourn the little girls who had been killed by the KKK. And so there was a memorial service in Des Moines, and people wore black armbands. And uh, these things were all going on at the same time. So by 1965 then, uh, well, also the day that Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman were, they were killed in Mississippi Freedom Summer, also by the Klan. And their bodies were discovered on August 4th, 1964, which was the same exact day that the Gulf of Tonkin incident happened, where a U.S. Navy ship off the shore of Vietnam claimed that it had been attacked, and it turns out it hadn't been attacked, but the Congress then voted almost unanimously to send thousands of troops to Vietnam. So by 1965, there had been about 1,000 U.S. soldiers killed in Vietnam, and the war was starting to build up, and LBJ was, uh, the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident had been his his uh, reason, I guess, that he was looking for, because they were already sending troops, but now they could really send more and more thousands of troops. And I'm sure a lot of you have family in the Vietnam War who had been in the Vietnam War, and so you all know how emotional this all was. And we, we saw the news of the uh, children running from their burning huts, the soldiers lying on the ground, the body bags, um, you know, the report every night on the news, how many soldiers were killed. And it was very moving and emotional for us. So when we decided to wear the black armbands, it wasn't an easy decision. I was a very shy girl, and a small group of, of students in Des Moines there organized this, this effort. And I was one of the youngest ones, but I wasn't sure if I should do it. But I had been inspired by these kids I saw in Birmingham, just like kids now are inspired by by some of the students they might have seen in Black Lives Matter or various other ways that students have been standing up and speaking up. So I decided that I would wear a black armband. And, and then I went to my math class, and my teacher was there waiting and sent me to the office in a great stand of courage and conviction when he asked me to take off the armband. I did <laughs> in about five seconds. And then I was suspended anyway. So uh, five students were suspended. My brother John, Chris Eckhart, and two others were suspended. But then the haters started coming out of the woodwork, threatening to bomb our house, 
uh, putting, throwing red paint at her house. A lady called and threatened to kill me. They would call us communists. Uh, my mom would always say, we're not communists, we're Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll have to say, one group that stood by us, that came to, our, to help us, was the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. And this was an ACLU case, as all four of the uh, cases, ours and three cents, having to do with student speech rights at the Supreme Court, have all been ACLU cases. The ACLU goes to the Supreme Court more than any organization in the United States because of its commitment to the Bill of Rights. They always have been very true to their mission to stand up for the First Amendment. Okay, so, but let me get back for a second to your case because I yeah. don't want to lose this piece of it. Yeah. Did you go to the Supreme Court for your argument? Yes, yes, we did. We, the ACLU um, stood by us and we went to, they said first you have to negotiate, which I always advise students, if you have a disagreement, try to negotiate. They, we did that, but the, the school board wouldn't change their mind. So it went to the district court where we lost, and it went to the appeals court where we lost. But interestingly, right around that time, some students in Mississippi who had protested the murder by the KKK of the three civil rights workers there, they won their case. They had worn buttons to school to protest the murder of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman, and they won their case. So now you had uh, two circuits with different opinions about students' rights. So it was, wow. a, it was a perfect setup. That was called Burnside. And they won at the circuit level because the courts in Mississippi, the uh, Fifth Circuit, said that they had not substantially disrupted school. So that's where your substantial disruption in schools standard comes from. It's from Mississippi Freedom Summer. And so it was, it, it was appealed to the Supreme Court, then they take very few cases. They take around 80, I think, a year. And, and what do you remember feeling the day that they handed down the decision saying that the First Amendment did protect your rights after all these years of litigating? I was so surprised because I was a kid and I thought there's no way these big important judges are going to say that kids have rights. Um, but you know, I've found since that there are many allies, adult allies of children and, and teenagers, and it really is a, a children's rights case, uh, which is an international, actually, an international human rights issue, because young people have so many issues they need to stand up about. I'm a pediatric nurse. I've spent many years as a nurse working with teenagers, and their status isn't so great in our society. They are more likely to live in poverty. Our infant mortality rate is one of the worst in the developed world. We have an increase in teen homelessness, all of these issues that youth really need rights to speak up and stand up about, whether it's uh, you know, pollution, climate change, racial issues in their schools, and so many other things that affect their lives, and they should have a right to use the First Amendment. So I'm, I'm glad that the Supreme Court said that they do have rights. Well, I appreciate it very much hearing from both of you. So ladies and gentlemen, can we have a round of applause for a hero of the First Amendment and a historian of the First Amendment? Although Ohio Governor John Kasich couldn't appear in person today, he graciously offered to meet with Duquesne University President Ken Gormley for a conversation about the importance of the First Amendment in America. Good morning, Governor Kasich. We greatly appreciate your willingness to participate in this uh, important conference, especially given how busy it is in the Ohio Capitol right now. So I want to begin with this. Over the course of your career, you've served in the Ohio legislature, in the United States Congress, in business, as a broadcast journalist for Fox News, and now as governor of this great state. Given that rich experience, how would you summarize the importance of the First Amendment in our American democracy? And here I'm talking about the whole gamut, not just free speech and free press, but all aspects of that guarantee, freedom of religion, assembly, association. Why is it so important to us? Well, it's about freedom, right? It's about an individual not being constrained. To, uh, by somebody else. So if you take a look at, at what the founders did with freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech, and uh, this is a hallmark of what it means to have a free society. And you've spoken eloquently in the past, specifically. Well, at least spoke. I don't know <laughs> right. how eloquently. About the special value of free press in our society. And I've watched some of those uh, videos 
recognizing even still that the press can get it wrong at times. So why is the freedom of the press so fundamental to all of the rights we enjoy as Americans? And how do you react in your public positions when the media gets something wrong about you? Well, the press is important because uh, they can shed light in corners that the light may never be shown. Now, that doesn't mean that the press doesn't have responsibilities. They do. Um, today, I think we all get concerned when uh, you know, the press is evolving and changing and a lot of people under duress in that business. Uh, you don't want to substitute real reporting in exchange for hits and clicks and more eyeballs, so therefore more money. So there's an element of responsibility. It's almost a sacred honor in a way that if you're a member of the press, you have an obligation to right. look at the facts and report them. Now, today, I think it's also important that the consumers of the press, which would be you and me, that we don't be a, a siloed consumer of the press, you know, take bites out of everything make it widespread, and then you can draw your own conclusion. Because, you know, we're, we're pretty, Americans are, well, you know, people are pretty smart. They've got good instincts. The Lord's given them pretty good instincts. And so the ability to, to sample a lot and draw a conclusion is, is the best way to become a consumer of the news. And what's your view about hate speech? We hear a lot about that in the news, but do you think that has any place in our society at all? I actually have kind of I've changed, I've evolved in, in this area, always kind of thinking about the common sense that should determine who should come to a college campus. I've determined that I was, I'm just not right about that. I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't hate to say it. I've kind of changed my mind. Let it flow. Mm -hmm. Let it flow out there. And uh, now you're a private institution, and so you have a, a, a possibility of regulating, but, but frankly, regulating is not very smart. I have a, a great, great friend who has been the president of a number of universities, Gordon Gee, and he and I have talked about this. And Gordon is a believer, and I think he's right. Let, let the word out there. Right. If you have somebody who's really uh, way out there, then have a counterspeaker. If you, you just don't want to begin limiting who can be heard because what I think somebody shouldn't be heard tomorrow, it's what you think, and maybe it's me that doesn't get heard. Now, of course, when it gets down to an issue of, of a, a threat of violence, you know, we're going to, you know, then, you know, that's not tolerable. Sure. That's not the First Amendment. That's not free speech. That's but, conduct. That's action. But that there point. are a lot of crazy, crazy ideas and opinions out there that are really repulsive, uh, but they won't stand the light of day. If we, you know, what we can do by restricting this is probably give them even more attention uh, if we do not allow them to speak. You combat harmful speech with more good speech. I think the beauty of freedom is the, of a free society is the ability of different parties to be able to communicate and to create a, uh, a symbiosis that can lead to a clarity. Um, but I think what happens is you rub up against one another to make it simple, and, uh, and then the truth prevails. Um, so I think it's, it's, not, it's, it's also responsibility on the part of all of us as citizens to not just sit back and not have our say. And you know, one of the things I think people need to know is what you think. I don't care whether you're delivering the mail like my father did or, or cleaning the floor and turning out the lights or whether you're running U.S. Steel. Uh, your opinion matters. It matters with the people that you speak to. Your actions matter. So it's important for all of us to be engaged. We appreciate it very much, Governor, for you taking the time to sit down with us in this beautiful Ohio yeah, State House. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Thank you. This conversation was presented by Duquesne University and the Pittsburgh Foundation in partnership with the National Constitution Center. This episode was edited by Jackie McDermott and Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. Tune in to hear part three of 1A USA on June 4th. And if you enjoy this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.